0: Welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Belt. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you today with another great, great episode. We have uh, the recap of the Super Bowl coming for you. Updates all over the MLB and then uh, fan graphs, actually one of our favorite sites, has released their playoff odds uh, for 2021. So we'll be getting into each and every one of those things. But before we do get started, let's go. uh, For the first time, we have some housekeeping for you guys, some very exciting news. Um, Our little podcast here will be taking a migration in the next couple of weeks. We'll still be releasing audio podcasts, but we are joining... Uh, More Than Baseball, whose founder, Jeremy Wolf, has been on the show, we are joining their Twitch network, uh, and we're going to have a show there where we do something very similar to this. Uh, We talk about sports. We talk about news. Um, But we also are able to do visual things. So we'll take you on a StatCast walkthrough with the um, page up on the screen so you guys can follow along and see what we've always been trying to tell you. When the show comes out in April, we'll get some show games going on there. We may even rip some baseball packs for you guys, baseball cards. So we're going to have a little bit of everything, a lot of ideas in the works. Uh, We think this is going to be a really cool way to kind of take uh, what we talk about one step further. Um, And for those of you who really like the topics, who are really interested in this stuff, we'll be able to engage uh, in a much more meaningful way um, than we sometimes are able to on the podcast. So we're both very, very excited for that. Uh, and if you guys have any ideas, make sure to let us know, tweet us out at the Alonzo bet on Twitter, or send us an email, the at gmail.com. Um, we'd love to hear some ideas, uh, of what you guys would like to hear on here and see on Twitch in the future. So with that, Sam, um, you were kind of an Oracle last week before the Super Bowl. you saw some, some visions of what was going to happen. You also saw some visions of things that didn't happen. But uh, let's start with the very, very good news. If people had bet our bets last week, would they have made money?
1: Well, it depends sort of which ones they made and in what proportions they committed resources to those bets. But we made a couple of calls that I'm pretty happy about. Most notably is if you guys jumped on my recommendation to bet a Devin white interception at 18 to one. You were rewarded handsomely, uh, by sort of a garbage time interception made by Devin white to, uh, to seal the
0: game. And to that's be honest, exactly how you foresaw it, right? You yeah, saw yeah, it yeah. in the winding down moments of the game, a ball that accidentally landed in his hand.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, uh, Aaron and I were watching the game. I was feeling kind of down because I was actually fairly financially committed to the chiefs. I had, I'd hedged a bit by betting Tom Brady to win MVP, which of course he did end up winning. And I always thought that that was, that was the way to bet on the box rather than bet on their money line, which is that if the, Bucks and we told won, you that
0: we told you that last week, folks,
1: ex- exactly. Uh, but, but that Devin white interception saved my day, uh, and brought me back from having, you know, a decent loss to a small win on the day. So that, that interception was one of the few bright spots for me, betting wise in the game. Uh, Because to be honest, the game shocked me. I thought the chiefs
0: were the beggar team. uh, And well, even if you didn't think they were a better team, Sam, let's tell the people what happened. If they weren't watching, the chiefs didn't score a touchdown. The chiefs played four quarters of football and kicked three field goals and scored no touchdowns. Like no matter what you might've thought you could have foreseen in the outcome of this game. I don't think anybody, anybody saw the no touchdown performance from the chiefs. And I'm not even going to say from Patrick Mahomes, like I normally would because Patrick Mahomes hit guys in the hands. He hit him in the helmet. He hit him all over the body with passes that they dropped, and good players. Kelsey dropped one, uh, Cheetah dropped two at least, and it was it was tough to watch. But it, something I'd like to get your take on. Uh, go ahead, and then I'll and then I'll. Well, well, I just
1: w- w- while we're on the point, like, let's say you didn't watch the Super Bowl,
0: and after the game you went and looked
1: at Patrick Mahomes stats. And you thought, you, you would look at it and say, Patrick Mahomes just played the worst game of his career. He was awful. What on earth happened to him? Mm-hmm. But now let's say you did watch the Super Bowl. You might say, Patrick Mahomes is still the most impressive quarterback in football. He played incredibly. It's a miracle that when someone, when a quarterback is playing that well, you could possibly not score a touchdown. Because mm-hmm. he was literally making, there was one play where he got Tripped up on the legs, dove was literally parallel to the ground in midair, through the ball sidearm, over the outstretched hands of a defender, and the ball hit his receiver in the end zone in the helmet. I'm not exaggerating. It hit him in the helmet.
0: He didn't it went, even right,
1: it went. It went even worse. It went right through his hands and hit him in the helmet. And I mean, this is what Mahomes was dealing with all day. Uh, we talked about. In our preview episode, you know, what I said is the chiefs, I think are the better team. It's hard. It's like just very hard to stop them offensively, but they have problems on the offensive line with injuries. And I said, if, if I, I'm not going to say that I was like, this is going to happen. But I said, if there's a world in which they lose, it's because their offensive line just cannot stop the Bucks' pass rush. And even though Mahomes is the best quarterback under pressure in the league, I mean, there's, there's pressure, and then there's seeing a wall of defenders converge
0: on you immediately after the ball is snapped every single play. Every single play. So there's two things. One is you did say that, but you also made the point on the other end of the ball, which was equally as important in my opinion, When you give Tom Brady time to work, even in his old age, he is good still. If you pressure him, he's garbage. And, you know, credit to the Bucs offensive line, who played pretty well. But really, at the end of the day, Chris Jones never got home. No one on the outside got home. The outside linebackers never got home. Brady faced, I think, 12 pressures the entire game on dropbacks. That's not enough. They didn't come after him. So uh, maybe some personal performance, maybe some defensive game planning because I really didn't see them send that many people all that often. And it also gave Fournette room to run. Um, But the big question for me, Sam, is, you know, and we heard this on the broadcast when we were watching it together and we were both kind of confused, but there were these injuries on the offensive line, namely Mitchell Schwartz being out, right?
1: Well, Mitchell Schwartz has been out for a few weeks now. Then
0: Eric Fisher, uh, Eric sorry, Fisher, Eric, Eric Achilles Fisher. as well. Yeah, mainly Eric Fisher being out because obviously Mitchell Schwartz being out hurt them, but they had obviously played through it and they found this rotation of um, backup players who were giving you know good enough quality minutes in the game. So my question is, when Eric Fisher goes down, instead of trying to plug that hole. With maybe somebody who, you know, it's not ideal or he's not the best player you have, but somebody who, you know, can fit at that position. They chose to shuffle three guys around. So instead of one position being super much, much weaker than it was in previous weeks, and given it's the blind tackle position, so it's obviously an important position, but instead of one position, they basically made it so everybody was out of position except the center. Was that the right decision to make? I I'm not I don't know enough about offensive lines, but it doesn't seem like it was the right decision to make based on what the fuck happened.
1: I mean, yeah, like obviously in retrospect, 2020 hindsight, it seems like it was definitely the wrong decision and you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know the Chiefs personnel better than the coaching staff does. Like they obviously had some reasoning behind the decision, but, you know, given what I understand about offensive line play, which, you know, I've watched a lot of highlight videos of Beckton, Becton, um, the big ticket, getting on Highway 77. You know, if he was left tackle in that game, maybe the Chiefs win, who knows? Uh, if he was left tackle in that game, he would have scored three times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, a big part of offensive line play is communication and continuity along the line. You hear it all the time that, offensive lines really need to build chemistry because it's hard to deal with like the exotic packages and blitz schemes that defenses throw at you. And you need to have some chemistry to know how to pass off these protections and stuff like that. And when everyone, when, you know, four out of the five guys on the line are playing a position for the first time that season, trying to run an offense, like maybe it's not so surprising that it didn't work out. And like maybe not even Patrick Mahomes can handle that sort of, discontinuity and disarray on the offensive line and that brings me to one more point I want to make which is that it was shocking how badly the Chiefs got outcoached in this game like I think of Andy Reid as one of if not you know top two or three best head coaches in the NFL Uh, and I think this is mainly in his like creativity as a play caller, as an offensive schemer, like he's always coming up with the, with the counter punch to everything on the defense, always keeping the defense off balance. Uh, And the offense looked kind of stale. I I don't want to take away credit from, the box defense, which just played out of their mind. Well, hats off to Todd Bowles, who was a, the Jets head coach for a few years. Aaron certainly heard me complain about Todd Bowles a few times from the perspective of like his timeout decisions, things like that. But I never oh, questioned yeah. the type of coach he is as a defensive mind. He, that man is a great, great defensive coordinator. Uh, and he just put together a remarkable, a remarkable game plan Hats off to him there. Hats off to the Bucks defensive players for pulling it off. They just played out of their minds. I mean, I, no one's ever done that to Mahomes. Mahomes never has never lost a game by more than a possession in his entire career. But he's he
0: definitely uh, never played a game where they didn't score a touchdown. Yeah.
1: But then the other thing about Andy Rieg is that you know. He silenced a lot of his critics by winning the Super Bowl last year, but there have always been questions about him making sort of funky decisions with time management, especially in the playoffs. And that came back to bite them in this game where after the Chiefs scored to make it a one possession game towards the end of the first half, it was 14 to six. They were still totally in the game. The Bucs ran with like 45 seconds left with the intention of running out the clock for the half, they were Bruce Arians make a boneheaded decision and said, Hey, we're not going to try to score to run out this half. And then Andy Reid calls a timeout, which is like, okay, I don't think that makes much sense, but maybe you think we get another stop on the next play and we get the ball back. We can score again, really get some momentum going into the half. But then the next play, the bucks get it to like third and two. And Andy Reid calls another timeout like now in this very favorable position for the Bucs to convert on third down and the Bucs do exactly what they did in the NFC championship game, which is take a deep shot. This time it wasn't a catch by Scotty Miller, but a pass interference penalty, uh, by, I think it was Breland And, and this was another problem for the chiefs all game is that their, their secondary could not cover anyone. And when they even did have good coverage, they would just hold,
0: um, and they would get called, they got called for everything. And don't forget that that's not the only penalty that keeps that drive alive.
1: What was the other one? Oh, was it it that? was
0: the Nicole Hardman offsides on the field goal. Was, because oh, they that, were was, just,
1: that was that drive too.
0: Yeah. They were just going to kick the field goal. So first it's the yeah, pass. Yeah, fear that's it. right. That's right. So you're absolutely correct. And, and the end of the story, of course, that they go down and they score a touchdown, they get the ball back at half, they score again. And the game's essentially over after, you know, after five minutes into the second half, but It's, it's incredibly dumb by Andy Reid. It's just truly because it's a bad decision by Bruce Arians to start. There's just no reason not to go for it. And it's an even worse decision by Andy Reid to call the timeout once it gets to third and two, but really at the end of the day, the only thing that the chiefs can do is point to themselves. Like we already talked about um, receivers dropping balls. Their defense had so many penalties in such big spots that the game could have still been close and, and there were
1: just there are mental penalties it's not like they were so you know.
0: dumb they were all such bad penalties and then you know it's not the rest fault a lot of people were saying like oh the refs are playing for brady like it wasn't the refs' fault this game regardless of how the rest call it, it probably ends up the same way but the rest certainly didn't help anything because the chiefs were definitely struggling you could tell Um, And you mentioned continuity on the offensive line. Well, part of that is playing in rhythm, right? And they weren't staying on the field for very long in the beginning of the game. Penalties were keeping the defense on the field for even longer. They never established a rhythm. And then the refs just every time they had a chance to maybe get something going, a call wouldn't go their way. Nothing super egregious, nothing that I would really point to as like, that's the worst call I've ever seen. But every single toss up seemed to go the path or the, the Pat's the bucks way. <laughs> um, and that's the recipe for losing a really big game. So final um, final
1: coaching point on my side yeah. which is that I talked about Todd Bowles, also big credit to go out to Byron Leftwich here who the, all all year team uh people were criticizing the Bucks for not running enough play action with Tom Brady and they finally they saved it for the Super Bowl they ran play action more than they had any other game it worked like a charm uh i think they scored a one of the the Gronk touchdowns on it uh so yeah hats off to Byron Leftwich as well um so with that, uh, any final thoughts on, on the NFL, or do you want to move on to sort of the closing stages of MLB free agency?
0: No, I'm itching to get into MLB free agency. Pitchers and catchers report next week, Sam. I am ready to go, and let's get to a massive free agent signing. The bi- The two biggest dominoes left, arguably, definitely the biggest, probably the second biggest, have both fallen. Um, And let's start right off with the behemoth himself, and that's Trevor Bauer. It was long rumored that it was Mets and Dodgers left, and at the end of the day, he's going to go to the Dodgers on a deal that, get this, pays him out $102 million over three years. And the majority of that is front-loaded into years one and two. He gets $40 million to pitch next year. That's insane. He gets $45 million to pitch the year after. That's also insane. But what's crazier than all of this is the Dodgers are paying out that huge, huge money and giving him the ability to opt out after either year. It's a player opt-out after either year. And all I can think is, holy crap, Rachel Lubba must be good at her job. Yeah, this is well, the most friendly contract I've ever seen. Well, I mean, Bauer has
1: long talked about how he, he wanted to go year to year on contracts. And this is the closest we've ever, I think, seen a player of his caliber come to doing that. A- and like you said, there's opt outs after year one and year two. And I think the way, you know, we say this is three years 102. I think the way to view this is that it's two years 85. He's going to opt out after year two unless he gets injured or something. Um, because at, at the end of the day, that ends up a one year for 17. And if he keeps up anything close to the performance that he's shown, he's going to be able to get that on the mm-hmm. open market as a free agent again. Uh, so there are, a couple, there are a couple things I want to talk about here with the Bauer deal. First is sort of the dynamics of like how this ended up playing out just in terms of like the gossip that people thought he was going to go to the Mets. And then let's talk about like actually – this from a baseball perspective, like mm-hmm. how does Bauer fit with the Dodgers? Is he worth this money? What do we think about him as a pitcher? Uh, So let me just give my quick piece as a Mets fan. Uh, you don't even have to comment if you, if if I'm, if I'm off base, just say, so I'm, I, I'm on Twitter a lot. And the night before Bauer signs, the, the, the great never wrong Bob Nightingale uh, tweets that it, it's over. bower to
0: the Mets. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, because not everyone's plugged into baseball Twitter, that's a that's heavy sarcasm by Sam. Bob Nightingale somehow has never broken an accurate story. I don't know how he still has a job because every time he breaks something on Twitter. It's both riddled with spelling errors and turns out to just be flat out not true. So he is just (laughs) getting roasted every day on Twitter by people. Um, And so he did break the news that Sam just mentioned that uh, the Mets had signed Bauer.
1: So actually, like I saw that tweet, I called my dad and was like, the Mets signed Bauer. And then like I saw another tweet and I was like, oh, never mind. It's not true. Then the next day, there are all these like Easter eggs being dropped that it's like it's the Mets people are on Bauer's website and they're saying like he accidentally posted that he has like some LFGM merch. He had some auction on his website for a Trevor Bauer signed hat. So everyone's like, okay, he's going to the Mets. And he's just a fucking weirdo who wants to like announce it on his own YouTube channel. And he's like, not letting any, (laughs) any team or reporter announce it. Um, cause he thinks he's like LeBron James, uh, (laughs) But then you know now he's posting a hat from the Dodgers that's signed for an auction and blah blah blah. So now it's like what the what the fuck is going on? And then I'm just like, all right, I'm 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 off Twitter. I can't deal with this bullshit. Like, I'll just hear when he signs. And then John Heyman tweets that he's signing with the Dodgers, and I'm not gonna. You know, I thought Trevor Bauer was gonna really make the Mets like up there with the Dodgers and Padres as like sort of a three-prong like best teams in the NL if the Mets got Bauer they didn't it doesn't mean I think they had a bad offseason they ended up missing out on Bauer and Springer and Real Muto, but of course they triggered for Lindor and Carrasco I still think they're the third best team in the NL but they are a clear step below the the Dodgers and Padres so you know oh well they didn't get Bauer uh But, you know, the way at the end of the day, it really seems like, you know, the Mets basically offered him the same contract as the Dodgers. It was a little less in years one and two and a little more in year three. Uh, But, you know, it really seems like Bauer was never intended to sign with the Mets and like use them to get the Dodgers contract higher where that was where he always wanted to go, which, you know, fine, you know, that's obviously in your right, but like Sandy Alderson at leak, like said, like he had never had a deal get that close without being signed. Like he sort of thought that the deal was done. So maybe some shady stuff coming out of Bauer's camp in this, but you know, at the end of the day, Trevor Bauer, the reigning NL Cy Young award winner is now on the Los Angeles Dodgers, the reigning world series winner.
0: So what's your thought on that, Aaron? Well, I mean, obviously The Dodgers didn't need any help, okay? (laughs) They were already going to be an extremely, extremely good team next season. And now they're just insane. Like, their pitching rotation is Walker Buehler, Trevor Bauer, Clayton Kershaw, Dustin May, and then some combination of David Price and Julio Arias.
1: Like, that's really good. They basically have at least— And Tony Gonsolin.
0: Yeah, I, I'm actually super low on Tony Gonson, but I, I right. suppose that's, that's fair that he also is theoretically part of the mix. Their bullpen is just like still so stacked for some reason. And then, you know, of course, they have amazing players at every position. Like, without they, if they haven't yet re signed Justin Turner, so without Justin Turner, there is a question mark at third base. I think AJ Pollock is a question mark next year, but they have some guys in the minors and their lineup is just obviously super strong. So for them, this is obviously amazing. It's, it's the best, one of the best teams in baseball, if not the best team in baseball, getting the best free agent pitcher on the market. That, that's a slam dunk. But I, to be honest, if I was a GM, even if I had the means, I'm not paying him $40 million a year. Has he been the best pitcher in baseball um, for 73 innings? Yes. Last year, he was the best pitcher in baseball for 73 innings. Was he the best pitcher in 2018 when he, you know, had a 2-2-1 ERA? No, he wasn't. He he was really good, but he wasn't the best pitcher. Jacob deGrom was the best pitcher that year. Exactly. He was good, but he, you know, he wasn't the best pitcher in baseball. And every other year of his career – his ERA has been above four. Every other year of his career, his expected ERA has been above four, except one when it was three six. He, or sorry, that's his expected FIP. He is volatile. He is not a straightforward winner. And let me tell you something this is a guy who's obsessed with his mechanics and getting his pitches to move the right way. And like looking into, um, you know, kinematic data using things like Ripsoto and it's it's making him a better player. Obviously, he is turning, he is willing himself into somebody who has absolute elite talent. But the truth of the matter is even his advanced metrics have only been good twice. For the rest of his career, he's been league average in almost everything. Um, And... You know, and I'm talking about things here like XWOBA and hard hit percentage and exit velocity and all that stuff. Um, So, you know, I don't, I I, I just don't know what he's going to do. Like, he could be a Cy Young contender next year, and that's great, and then he's worth the $40 million. But I think it's equally as likely that his ERA hovers around four, and he's a serviceable workhorse who gives you 180 innings. But then it's like, oh, my God, we just paid this guy $40 million?
1: Yeah, so... I understand that perspective. Um, I think I'm a bit more, I understand the Bauer deal a bit more and I think it comes down to a couple of points. First is that I've, I've sort of made this point a few times in the, on the podcast, which is that like, there really is no such thing as like a bad one year deal. Like, you're paying the money and it's just like, if you have the money to pay, then go ahead and pay it. Like deals are only bagging so much that they hamstring you from doing things in future years. And, you know, maybe Bowers on the books two years, like if it stops them from extending Kobe Bellinger from re-signing Corey Seager, like then that's a problem. But like, insofar as they view this financial commitment as extremely short term, just to win another one, two World Series, then fine, you know? and. Right. Then my other point is like, okay, so then you make a good point, which is that, well, like how good do we actually think Trevor Bauer is? Because, you know, it looked like he had finally broken out in 2018 and had this tremendous season after years of like perfecting his pitches, figuring out how to play them off of each other. Uh, and then 2019, he took a big step back. Um and then 2020, of course, he's he's maybe the best pitcher in baseball. Well, Shane Bieber was the best pitcher in baseball, but he was the best pitcher
0: in the Yes. Out. Sorry, um, I agree with that.
1: Um now, like we always say on this podcast, it's like, well, when we're when we look at sort of outlier performance, the question is like, how are we going to project it going forward? Because of course, that's what that's what the deal is. And we you know, we saw something similar with the Phillies last year, where like maybe Zach Wheeler had like a half a season to a full season of looking like a really good starting pitcher, but the Phillies sort of paid thinking that that would continue going forward. Um, so with Bauer, you know, there are a couple things we look at long as I think, you know, this is a bit of like an anecdotal, not diga driven thing, but it's just that like he's, but I mean, it is Dega driven in the sense that like he is known as a pitcher that is constantly seeking edges and ways to improve himself. So like, maybe you're going to be like slightly more charitable and believing that he's like found a new level of success. Um because he is constantly trying to like look at new things and find find ways to fine-tune his approach. The second thing is that for many years he had sort of a league average uh, fastball spin rate. Um, and he he even commented on the fact that like interesting that you see these Astros pitchers uh, increasing their spin rate, I've actually researched a lot how to do this and there's no way to do it other than basically using a sticky substance and cheating. He made those accusations of Astros pitchers. Uh, last season, he had the highest fastball spin rig in the league. He just did, you know, you could look at the data he did. Um, so, you know, based I on his... I forgot
0: about that. That's a, that's a great, that's a great story.
1: And, and, you know, there's a lot of data that like having a high fastball spin rig is actually even more important than having high fastball velocity. Like it correlates more with having a a successful fastball and being able to play off of it. Um, So, okay, well, yeah, if he has the highest fastball spin rig in the league to combine with those really good slagger, really good curveball, that all play off each other extremely well from a tunneling perspective. Like, yeah, that's the makeup of, you know, one of the best pitchers in baseball. Now, the question—well, be,
0: be careful, Sam, because his curveball usage dropped to only fifteen percent in twenty twenty. Ah,
1: so maybe he's uh maybe he's, he's got he's something. moving away from the pitch yeah. in
0: favor of the slider.
1: Interesting. So maybe he thinks the slider like tunnels better with the fastball or something.
0: Uh, Although, of course, in today's day, in today's game, especially with a guy like Bauer, it's kind of hard to differentiate between a slider and a curveball. Yeah.
1: Um. You know, and that's the thing with Bauer is that he's always trying to sort of design the movement of his pitches in a way that will like fool the hitters most, tunnel best with his other pitches. But, you know, it seems like, you know, as far as the argument that Bowers made in the past, unless he's magically found this new way to increase your spin rate, he is now cheating. Now, is this like some extremely immoral cheating? I don't know. I think 80% of pitchers in baseball are doing it.
0: I think 95% of pitchers in baseball are doing it. And I think hitters are okay with it. The MLB should just caught, co- like take it out of the rules. It's fine. Yeah.
1: And is this the new steroids thing where we're going to hear that? Like every pitcher was using sticky substances when the MLB was basically like tacitly okay with it. Uh, but and then they're then, all
0: going to get in trouble later.
1: Yeah. I don't know, but basically like, okay, well, if Bauer decided, Hey, I wasn't able to, you know, if everyone else is going to cheat, I'm going to cheat too. Uh, so maybe maybe that has to do with him becoming a new pitcher. The
0: the Well, the last... Sam, let's just say that his fastball spin rate was still in the 89th percentile in 2019. It's been climbing steadily since he broke into the league with a literal 50th percentile. Um, so it's a he was the fastest or he had the most spin in the league last year, but he was basically 90th percentile the year before. So
1: hmm. gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, that that is true. Um, so I wonder if it's basically like he's, uh, he's started to cheat more and more. Um, well, it's just like, I like, listen, I, this is something he said himself and he's maybe the greatest pitching scientist in the world.
0: That, that's actually, I don't think an exaggeration. Like, I think maybe some of the driveline guys are too, and there's probably better people who quote unquote, no pitching better, like are better pitching coaches, But I'm not sure there's any other major leaguer who looks at it from a scientific and data-driven perspective like he does.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think there are other pitchers that look at it from this perspective, but he basically created this perspective and is probably ahead of what anyone else is doing. The Mm -hmm. last point I want to make on Bauer, which is maybe a point back on your side of like, well, who is this guy really, is that the 2020 season was very weird in that you only faced two divisions Um, and he happened to face the central divisions, which are the, the, which were the two worst offensive divisions in both leagues. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think they had like a 88 WRC plus like across those two divisions on the season. So it's like, that's the other perspective, which is that like he faced worse offensive competition than basically like other great pitchers in the game. So it's possible that that, buoyed his stats for the season um so i think you know again like at the end of the day like this is certainly great for the dodgers chances of winning the world series in 2021 um yeah
0: yeah no one's questioning that but i
1: but i agree that there are sort of a lot of questions of like who exactly is trevor bauer as a pitcher um and what can we expect moving forward i think it's going to be closer to 2018
0: and 2020 than the rest of his career, but, but who knows? Yeah, we'll see. The other big signing was, uh, I think the biggest hitter on the board and that's Marcelo Zuna who re-signed with the Atlanta Braves for 464. Um, and him and another big signing Nelson Cruz going back to the twins. I think Sam made a good point to me earlier. I think both of their signings were delayed by the uncertainty in the DH, right? Like if there was going to be a DH, um, I think Ozuna could have fetched an even bigger contract than this because he certainly was a top 10 hitter in baseball last year. Um, and so, you know, I think he waited probably, but at the end of the day, Atlanta needed to get this deal done. I think 464 is really nice for him because I get that he can't play the field, but if he's really hampering them, you know, they can turn around and trade him mid season to an American league team with needs. And I think they'll get a big haul back, prospect or otherwise. Um, cause I think that's a friendly deal at the end of the day. Um, and then, you know, Nelson Cruz too, going back to the twins at one thirteen, I think that's about the right price. And I think the twins absolutely had to do it. So on both ends, I think the teams end up getting a player at a pretty decent price and something that they really needed to do to continue to compete next season.
1: Yeah. And, and on Ozuna, let, let's start with Ozuna. Uh, Ozuna is an interesting thing because like, it feels like he's been around forever, but he's actually still just turned 30. Mm-hmm. So like four years, 64 is like, that's really not a bad price for a guy who, yeah, had a one eighty WRC plus last year. And, you know, of course the two previous years, 2018, 2019, he was one Oh seven one Oh nine, like sort of a barely bigger than average hitter for the Cardinals. But if you look at some sort of some of his expected statistics, he was extremely unlucky in 2019, mm-hmm. um, and I was like just
0: about to say that. It's
1: just like always, like knocks the socking out of the ball. And actually, if you just look at his expected WOBA, he's basically just like gotten better every year of his career. Uh, yeah, and then um, so like yeah, I think 464 for him is like kind of a bargain if like he keeps hitting like this, and you know. He's a bit different than Cruz in that, like, yeah, he's not – you don't love to have him in the field, but, like, he can play the outfield. Like, it's not
0: You you can theoretically stick him out there. You should be fired if you play Nelson Cruz for a single inning in the field this year.
1: Yeah, well, and then, of course, Nelson Cruz is 40. He got a one-year $13 million contract, but he's also been – and this is not an exaggeration. In the last two seasons,
0: he has been the second best hitter in baseball be- behind Mike Trout.
1: He's yeah, been that both
0: se- both seasons. Yeah, he's got one sixty three and one sixty four in his thirty eight and thirty nine year old seasons. Like this guy's still hitting, and he's absolutely raking.
1: Yeah. So you know, this is a deal the Twins absolutely needed to have to you know keep up with the White Sox in the AL Central this year, and like. I mean, there's no reason to believe that he's he's going to, like, just randomly suck this year. Like, I know he's 40, but he's no, been I mean, the second-best hitter in baseball the last two years.
0: All the projections are kind of down on him, and they all have him somewhere between 120 and 135 WRC plus still. Like, he, they yeah, all yeah. are pegging him for big regression, and he's still a very, very good hitter in the league next year.
1: Yeah, and, you know, of course, like, he can only be a DH. That's why his value is low. But, you know, yep. even – you know, if he's the hitter he was the last two seasons, one year thirteen is like a bargain it's beyond a bargains. Like I'd rather pay if he's the hitter he's been the last two seasons, this season, like I'd all like I I think he's basically as valuable as Trevor Bauer for a single season. Yeah. Uh so you know, one year thirteen, I'm surprised that the market didn't develop more, and again. You know the fact that there was n- there there was uncertainty, and it seems like there probably won't be an NLDH this year. Obviously, Cugat's market in half, but it really seems like there are some other AL teams that should have been interesting in having you know one of the top five hitters in
0: baseball uh, play for them next year. Agreed. I-, I wholeheartedly agree, and like with the underlying metrics too. With Nelson Cruz, you don't see anything going wrong. He's still hitting the ball hard. He's still barreling it up a ton. His expected slugging, his expected WOBA, as high as ever. He's hitting the ball hard still. Um, there's literally no reason to think that he won't be a premier power hitter in the league again next year. And I'm just, I, I, I don't know. I just don't understand how no other team wanted him at that price. Even a team like the Rays. Or the A's, like that's kind of a bargain deal for the Rays, right? Like they could take him for one year and see if they could push again. Um, So yeah, I mean, good for the twins. I think without Nelson Cruz, the twins honestly stood no shot in that division. And they're still going to face a huge uphill battle with the White Sox. But there is some possibility there, uh, I think, for them to sneak into a wild card spot or uh, compete with the White Sox for the division. Um, and that is only really made possible through Cruz. So big job for both of these guys, big signings. Um, and yeah, I mean, shoot, I would have liked the D-backs to end up with these guys, but I get that they're just not competing this season. Yeah. I'm um, sorry about that. Now let's talk about another deal that involves uh, a big slugger in the league. This one, Sam, just have me in knots. Like I have no idea what's going on here and maybe you can shed some light. So the Rangers trade Elvis Andrus, Aramis Garcia, who's a backup catcher that they took off waivers from the Giants in November of last year, so like a couple of months ago, um, and $13.5 million. So the Rangers are paying the A's here to take these guys. But in return, the Rangers are getting Chris Davis, Jonah Heim, who was the A's 11th best prospect. He's a switch hitting catcher who's had some good offensive success in the minors and profiles out to be okay defensively and a throw in 21 year old pitcher, Dane Acker. Um, The A's are the one who are competing here. And I get that they lost Simeon, but was this really what they had to do to fill that hole? And if so, was this the right guy to go out and get Elvis Andrews who's old and hasn't hit in a while?
1: Yeah. I mean, it really seems like this trade was of like two totally washed players who are no longer productive major leaguers. I mean, Elvis Andrews last three years, his WRC plus is 76, 76, 58. I mean, projections like him as like from a 70 to an 83 WRC
0: plus, maybe 90, like
1: this guy yeah, is the a- bat.
0: The bat and ATC have him at ninety.
1: Yeah. But this guy is like a solidly below average major league hitter who maybe can right. still play above average defense at short, but you know, he's also getting up there in age. So you expect the defense to to keep declining as it already has started to. And like, man, what a downgrade from Simeon to Andrews. I mean, like, he can't be your everyday shortstop if you want to be a contender, I don't think.
0: I don't think so either. And the other weird thing is, like, they definitely had some depth options. Like, I, I understand that people don't believe Franklin Barreto can play shortstop in the Bigs, and that's fine, but they got some other guys down there. And to your point, Sam, is Elvis Angeles is a guy who's been a very good defender for most of his career. You know, he had um, five outs above average in 2019, which is quite good. But last year, he was able to somehow accrue. Negative three outs above average in a very short time frame in 29 games. And since that is a cumulative or accounting stat, that's pretty brutal. And to do that with, like, even if he's able to get his WRC plus up to 80, that type of defense with an 80 WRC plus, they're honest to God, they're off. They're better off with a minor leaguer, they're better off with a journeyman. You know, they'd be better off with John Birdie from from uh, the Marlins, who they could have easily gotten for this price. That's that's the
1: definition. Folks, if you're wondering what the definition of replacement level is and wins above replacement, that's it.
0: Yeah, that's it right there. Um, The problem is at shortstop, that's actually below replacement level. And to give this up. So, I, you know, Sam's right about Chris Davis. Um, like, I get that this is partly a salary dump because they're able to take 13 and a half back from the Rangers. And Chris Davis is, you know, had a really tough couple of seasons. And with a hitter like this, we actually saw it with the other Chris Davis, a guy who's just a tremendous power hitter. There definitely can be like a light switch that switches and then you're basically unplayable all of a sudden and it seems that that's what happened with Chris Davis over the last 2 years but at the end of the day you can't discount the fact that he had a uh, you know 122 to 136 wrc plus for 4 years in a row from 2015 to 2018 he hit 40 home runs 3 years in a row like and he hit 247 for 4 years in a row and he hit 247 4 years in a row still the craziest stat ever yeah. but at the end of the day like this is a guy who could you know very well be a good power hitter again next year. Uh, like I understand the risk, but he definitely could. The guy that really blows me away is Jonah Heim because catchers are so hard to come by for both of these teams. Both of these teams, it's been a long time since they had a good catcher. I guess Luke Croy had a good season or two with the A's, but, um, And this guy's a minor leaguer who has had some bad WRC pluses, you know, he's had some low numbers, but for most of the fuller seasons that he's played, he's had pretty good WRC pluses for catchers, especially in 2018 and 19, he was quite a good hitter in the minor leagues. Um, And he came up last year and stunk in 13 games, but he's a young guy, you know, he's 25 years old, which is still pretty young. Um, he's 6'4", 220. He's a switch hitter. He profiles for decent defense, and he's maybe got a bat like that's worth more than than both of these guys, arguably in this deal. Yeah,
1: I think at the end of the day, you can kind of view this trade as like the Rangers just paying for him or something like mm-hmm. like there's a salary dump, and they get a prospect back. And at the end of the day, like these are two like useless replacement level. Major league guys who used to be something but are maybe going to be out of the league next year. Like, who knows? It's a very weird trade. Uh, and I'm not sure what to think about it. Uh, there's one more signing that I thought was was kind of interesting that maybe we can touch on quickly before moving on to talking about the fangrass playoff odds. And that's that the Giants signed reliever Jake McGee to two-year seven million dollar contract. Jake McGee spent 2020 with the Dodgers and was remarkably good in 20 innings. He struck out 14 and a half baggers per nine walked less than one and a half baggers per nine had a 1.67 FIP, 2.1 X fit 2.6 ERA was really just incredible last year. Uh, and, you know, he is 34 and he does has, have a history of being incredibly inconsistent, as you pointed out to me before the podcast. But I really like this as a as a sort of cheap flyer for the Giants, if he looks anything like he did last year.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Sam. Uh, and I have a couple of things here. The first is that I, there's I'm warning you, there's one guy after this who I want to talk about because there is one more um, technically a trade, but basically a signing that we should discuss. But as far as Jake McGee goes. Yeah, he's just, like, there's been about half of his career, he's been pretty good, Um, sometimes very good, almost a two-war in 2012, two-and-a-half in 2014, one-and-a-half in 2017, accrued 0.7 wins last year, which is a ton considering he only threw 20 innings. Um, And sometimes he's been very good, you know, high strikeout rates, low walk rates, leaving guys on base, um, normal BABIPs, whatever. But then the rest of his career, basically the other half of his uh, career, he's been pretty bad. He has a season of 50 innings and 6.5 ERA. He has a season of 45 innings and 4.7 ERA. Um, a season of 41 innings and uh, 4.35 ERA. Um, he's been brutal sometimes. So the Giants need this because like, they stink. But um he could be very good for them more likely he'll be pretty good one season and pretty bad the other season of his uh contract let and me that's that's let sort
1: of what he's been throughout his career like five good seasons five bad ones
0: so exactly yeah um i promised i would do this with you live sam let me go through his Statcast percentile rankings last year okay let's hear it because you mentioned that he was good and he was, but let's see where he ranked in some of these key uh, advanced metrics. Exit velocity, first percentile, the worst possible in the league. Hard <laughs> hit percentage, fourth percentile, worst possible in the league, basically. Barrel percentage, 22nd percentile, the lowest quartile of the league. But now this is where things get really interesting, Sam. XWOBA and XCRA. Ninety seventh percentile. So this is similar to this 99. is ninety right. nine. Walk ninety six. X XBA ninetieth. X slugging seventy four.
1: So this is the type of guy that you know, fielding independent pitching numbers are just going to absolutely absolutely love. And then the ERA comes a bit back to normal. It reminds me a bit of actually like sort of what Josh Hader's season looked like a couple years ago, where he struck out. <laughs> like- where he struck out everybody and Edwin Diaz actually, yeah, he would just strike out everybody. But every time someone hit the ball, it was like hit was a hundred miles hour.
0: Yeah. yeah, it was an absolute tater. Yeah, that's just this is one of the craziest lines I've seen. Um, and wow, you're I guess yeah, you're K or nothing. Um, that's just how you're going to play it. But there is one other guy I wanted to talk about, Sam, and it's because it's a team that I really like. I went to school right down the street. I actually grew up rooting for them because Vladimir Guerrero is my all-time favorite player. Um, And that's the Angels. The Angels went out and got Dexter Fowler and the majority of his salary covered by the Cardinals. So they got Fowler plus $12.75 million for a player to be named later or cash. So basically the Cardinals were just like, take Fowler off our 25-man roster and give us you know save us 1.75 million dollars for next season we don't even care what you give us back which is like cool i guess for the angels they're like oh cool we have another major league player on our roster but i don't understand why they're so committed to not playing joe adele it doesn't make so for any those, sense for those of you who don't know joe adele is the angels top prospect and basically profiles out to be a five tool player like he profiles out to be a guy who can hit uh i mean he's not going to steal a ton of bases but he's going to hit for power he's going to hit for average um you know he's he's a great great hitter and he plays good defense in the outfield so he got uh 130 plate appearances last season he didn't play good he didn't play well at all he had a 29 wrc plus But instead of saying, okay, this is an important part of our long-term future, and we need to develop him now so that he can help us win championships, the Angels are just like, why don't we go ahead and get a guy who is actually the definition of replacement level? Like, he's literally like 95 to 100 WRC plus over the last three seasons on average. And, like, ne- slightly negative defensive runs. On you know, Dexter
1: Fowler is not even the best outfielder the Angels acquired this week.
0: Who else did they get?
1: It's Juan Ligaris.
0: Oh, I forgot that they what, got Juan, Juan Ligaris. Ligaris. That's a good pickup. Yeah. That makes sense. He's a defensive mastermind.
1: Who, Juan Ligaris, who won a gold glove with the Mets, is basically, you know, watching him day in and day out is one of the best defenders I've I've ever watched. I mean, he's, he's getting up there in age. So he's not as good as he used to be, but he's also a guy who just in the Dominican winter league was like scorched the ball. Like he's hitting home runs every day. Like he was, he was possessed. So yeah, who knows? He, maybe he was a beast. Maybe, maybe it carries over to some success in the majors. And honestly, I'm more like if I'm the angels and I'm trying to catch lightning in a bottle, I'm more interested in trying to like get a Juan break breakout this year and then like playing Dexter Fowler, 130 games.
0: I agree with you because I just don't think there's any way he eclipses 110 WRC plus next year. There's just literally no way his, his defense has been bad actually his whole career. I thought he used to be a good defender, but outs above average has always disliked him. He had minus eight runs in 2017, um, minus five in 2018, minus six in 2019. Like he's been bad. And he has not been a particularly good hitter with the exception of, um, you know, a two-year-ish, three-year stint in the middle of his career. I actually forgot when he played for the Astros. That's very funny. Um, so, yeah, but I just, like, that's the point. They're, they already got Lagaris. Now they have Fowler. They obviously have Trout and Upton. And, like, how many more outfielders can you have on your roster? Like, that basically zones Joe Adele out. And it means they have to get rid of somebody before they can bring him up or they have to carry an extra outfielder like uh, this guy needs a and it makes me so mad because he's going to be such a stud. If he can get them, they're letting him languish in the minors. He really needs the opportunity to play in the majors, I think. So that's just my two cents on the uh, angels, Joe Adele, Dexter Fowler saga.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you didn't let me forget to talk about that. It's worth bringing up, but with that, let's get into Fangraphs playoff odds. They were released today. Maybe we can, you know, we're not going to spend too long on this. We want to get you guys out of here. I know we've been running long on a lot of podcasts, but maybe let's just go through each division, say if there's like a team that jumps out at us, like what surprised us first thoughts right off the bat. So let's start in the AL East. The AL East is projecting the Yankees to win the division 70% of the time, make the playoffs 92% of the time. The Blue Jays and Red Sox are actually seen as the next two most likely to make to win the division at uh, 13.8 for the Blue Jays, 12.5 for the Red Sox. The Rays, the defending AL champions, are only viewed as 3% to win the AL East, less than 20% to make the playoffs. The Orioles are, of course, 0% for everything. Do, Do the Rays surprise you? I mean, I don't think it surprises us that the Yankees are the big favorites. Doesn't surprise us that the blue Jays after this offseason are going to contend for the wild card, 50% chance of making the playoffs, maybe can make a run at the division. I got to say like the rays being so, you know, miscast and also the red Sox being maybe surprisingly well-rigged by this.
0: Do you have similar it's, ideas? It's, yeah. So the red Sox jump out to me. The idea that they have the same chance of making the playoffs as the blue Jays is absurd. And so th- that's what jumped out to me when I read it. And then I was like, what are they seeing? And I guess I'm gonna try and reconstruct, obviously like most of this fan graphs playoff prediction is um, like like analytical modeling. So like m- very little of it is human interaction, but I'll, I'll give you the the narrative that they're seeing here. So. Their rotation is Chris Sale, Eduardo Rodriguez, Nathan Avoldi, Garrett Richards, and then some mix of Tanner Hook, Nick Pavetta, and Matt Andrees, which is pretty brutal at five. But theoretically, you know, if Eddie stays healthy, if Nathan Avoldi can be consistent on the hill and keep guys off base, and if Garrett Richards is healthy, so those are all huge ifs, right? Also, if Chris Sale has velocity again, right? He needs to throw more than 90 miles an hour. So there's a ton of ifs here, which is why if I'm evaluating this team, I'm saying no way in hell do they have a better chance than the Blue Jays. And they also don't have a better chance than the Rays. I have them solidly fourth in this division. But to give you the argument, if all of those guys are healthy, theoretically, that's a very strong rotation led by somebody who – has been the best pitcher in the American league before. And then ignoring the fact that their bullpen is a flaming dumpster fire, which deserves no respect outside of Adam Adovino, Matt Barnes and Ryan Brazier. um, You know, they do have an interesting mix of, um, you know, young and experienced talent across their team. You know, they have Bobby Dalback at first base. They have Kike and Michael Chavez to play second base Michael Chavez really serving as like a utility guy who can play any position on the field. We know Enrique can as well. They have Rafi at third, Xander Bogarts at shortstop, and then their outfields Benintendi, Verdugo, and Hunter Renfro, with, of course, J.D. Martinez at DH, who has really fallen off, but still could be a tremendous hitter. So it's a bunch of what-ifs, but if all of the what-ifs come true, I agree they're as good of a team as the Blue Jays. If every what-if comes true.
1: Yeah, and I think for those of you wondering like, well, why why are the Rays who just won the AL who just won the AL pennant like so underrated possibly by by these metrics? And one thing is that the Rays are a team that always excels by like getting the most out of their depth pieces and something and that's something that might be missed a little in a projection system like this where they sort of just simulate the team at full strength. And, you know, account for like bad luck and stuff like that, just in terms of losing games, like there's always going to be variants there, but it's not really accounting for like how teams deal with injuries and stuff like that. And the Rays are always going to like, maybe excel in that part of the game. So maybe they're going to get a little underrated in something like this.
0: Yeah. I would actually take it a step further, Sam. Um, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but Michael Walker and Ryan Yarbrough are the same age. Um, <laughs> And they're only three years older than us. They're, they're much younger than I thought. I, here's what they really don't account for. Like, they're looking at the rotation, of course, running an algorithm. And the algorithm is saying, okay, Tyler Glass now, that's great. Oh, my God, their number two is Ryan Yarbrough. And then Chris Archer and then Michael Walker, And then Josh Fleming at five? How can they win any games? But what they're not being able to factor in, because how could you, is that besides Tyler glass now likely none of these guys will be used as normal starters. Chris Archer, maybe to an extent, if he pitches well, but otherwise he won't. And so you're not looking at these guys to throw you know, 170 to 200 innings in the season. I'd be surprised if anyone outside of glass now and Archer throws more than 140 innings next season. Um, and that'll probably just be our They're going to mix and match these guys, put them in situations to succeed. So, you know, Does their team look good? Honestly, no, they, they look kind of brutal. But we've seen the Rays do more with less in the past. And I have no reason to believe, especially compared to the Red Sox, who have just, you know, front office themselves out of every opportunity to win in the last couple of years. Um, I see the Rays being able to put together a better season than the Red Sox on average next year.
1: All right. So with that, let's move to the AL central. Fangraphs basically sees this as a two-team race between the Twins and White Sox with the Twins at a 48% chance to win the division, the White Sox at a 40% chance, uh, 67 and 60% chances to make the playoffs respectively, and then the Indians and Royals with some some outside shots. Uh, I sort of expected the White Sox to jump ahead of the Twins here, I, I but what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so I also expected the same thing, to be honest. Um, Obviously, the White Sox making all of those moves in the offseason, grabbing Lance Lynn to really shore up their rotation, grabbing Liam Hendricks as a guy who's really going to help close out games for them. They still have Yasmani Grandal, Jose Abreu's off of an MVP season, Nick Madrigal (laughs) Madrigal is getting better,
1: John Boncada.
0: Yeah, Jay Alito, of course, Yohann Mankata's been good, Tim Anderson, Elor Jiménez. Their team's stacked. They're really, really good. So then you have to wonder, like, what do you see in the Twins? And I think, honestly, um, this is a mistake. I just, you know, I think the Twins' greatest asset at this point um, is their depth. You know, they really have like six guys who you could throw on the hill with reliability. Um, they have a variety of infielders they can mix and match. Uh, they have a variety of outfielders and everyone is a serviceable major league player. Um, but I, they're, they're, I just really don't see an argument for this in any way. Um, I think the Twins are a good team. I think they have a decent shot at making a playoff spot. Um, but for them to be the favorites to win the division, it does not sit right with me, I would say.
1: Yeah, and, and I think the if you're looking at the numbers here, don't take like a couple percent as gospel. I think, you know, right. from a larger perspective, we should view this basically as saying it's going to be a toss-up between these two teams. Um, so then if we move to the AL West, uh, what we've got here is the Astros at 60% to win. Uh, 70% to make the playoffs the angels at 25% to win 38% to make the playoffs and the athletics at 13% to win the division 21% to make the playoffs the Mariners and Rangers both viewed as having practically no shot at the playoffs uh I think this ordering makes sense I'm actually surprised they have the angels as close to the Astros as they do um but, yeah, I mean, I think this this division is going to be weaker than it has been in years past. The Astros are clearly not the team they've been in the past, losing Springer, uh, Verlander coming back from injury. But the A's are also not the team they've been in the past. Maybe this is finally Mike Trout's chance to steal a division.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, at the end of the day, let me just tell you that while I agree with these because I do see the A's falling off a bit, this is really going to come down to starting pitching, whoever is able to take that spot and potentially challenge the Astros who we agree are, are below their peak level um, is the combination of Sean Mania, Frankie Montes, and the youngsters, Luzardo and Puck going to be a solid rotation this season. There's so much volatility there outside of Luzardo, who I think is just a lock for being a stud. Um, or are we going to get good seasons out of Bundy, Griffin Canning, and Shohei Otani who don't forget will pitch again this season. I really think that these are two absolutely, explosive in the sense that they could either blow up in your face or destroy opposition rotations you could have two very solid rotations here or you could have two unplayable rotations basically and that's going to be the difference maker here i would say so um with that quick look. And again, we want to remind you guys that we're just running through these to give you guys our first takes. We're feeling super excited about all this. There's so much baseball content we want to get to. We have prospect rankings out this week. Um, We are going to go into our divisional previews in depth starting in the next week or two. Um, So right now we're just skimming the surface, but let's head over to the national league East where Sam, you, you gotta love it. The Mets have a 54.6 chance 54.6% chance to win the division and 82% chance to make the playoffs. And perhaps most impressively a 11% chance almost to win the world series.
1: And uh, I, I told Aaron to bet them before the off season, I got them at 22 to one to win the world series folks. Uh, So that's going to be a big hit. If I win big value there. Uh, And you know, they basically there's, the Braves are seen as like sort of right there behind them, 35% to win the division, 69% to make the playoffs with the Nationals and the Phillies sort of pulling up the rear at 8% and 3% respectively. I mean, I think this is basically right. I mean, I I wouldn't fault you if you thought the Braves were maybe a little better than the Mets. I, I think the Mets are a little better than the Braves, but I think these are the third and fourth best teams in the NL, you know, whichever way you want to put it.
0: Yeah, I'm a little surprised to see the 20-point gap between them. I thought it'd be closer to five. Um, but, you know, I, I don't fault the ordering here at all. None of that really stands out to me all that much. Yeah, and I think the, um, the Nats
1: and Phillies just quickly, you know, they're not awful teams, and you could see them make a run for the wild card, but they both have clearly are, like, very top-heavy in their lineups where they've got a couple stars and massive holes further down. Right. And right. with the Phillies, there's also, you know, again – Two really good starters, massive question marks behind that. Nats three good starters, big question marks behind that. So again, these are very top-heavy teams. So you might ask, like, why is there so much star power here with the bad projections? But you know, baseball is not a stars a stars game; it's a team game.
0: Yeah, you're you need 25 players who can play the game. So in the Central, they basically just have it as uh you know a mess. It's it's a yeah. cluster bleep. Um, the Cardinals at 32.5 to win the division, 36.2 for the playoffs. Brewers, 32 for the division, 35 and a half for the playoffs. Cubs, 19 and a half for the division, 22 for the playoffs. Reds, 16 and 18 and a half. And then the Pirates are basically out of it. Um, for me, I'll just tell you right off the bat, I just think the Cardinals are way better than all of these other teams uh, with the addition of Arenado. I-, I don't think it's even like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, another interesting thing to point out here is, you know, we talked about the division odds, but if you actually look at the projected wins by these teams, the Cardinals are at number one at 81.5. So they're basically saying the best Mm -hmm. team in this division is like projected to be 500. Like that is awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I agree the Cardinals are probably a little bit more of a favorite than they're given credit for here. But I think another thing that jumps out at me is like, you're in this terrible, terrible division, and you're you're the Cubs trading away you Darvish, trying to so trade away doing? Chris Bryant. It's just it's nonsense. Like this division's there for the taking, and they just aren't trying. And to they're take just it.
0: not. Yeah, they're yeah. trying so hard not to even compete. That's a that's a goat rodeo. I I really don't like the NL Central this year. They, and they I, should know,
1: not. They shouldn't get a playoff spot.
0: <laughs> I I generally agree with you, especially when you take a look at the teams. Um, you know, we already talked about the NL East, which has four teams that are, you know, would probably win the Central. The Phillies, I think, are right around the caliber of these other teams that are competing in the Central. But in the West, you have the Dodgers and the Padres at the top, who have a 96.3 and 92.8% chance of making the playoffs, respectively. The Dodgers, of course, get the edge for the division at 59.2 compared to the Padres 404 But wow, I mean, they have the Dodgers with a 17.7% chance to win the World Series, second most out of any team behind the Yankees, and the Padres at 12%, which makes them the third most, Mets sliding in at fourth with with the 10.8 that we previously mentioned. So this is is incredible with the strength of these two teams being recognized by this um, system here. Now, I do think we see the most glaring mistake of all of the uh, <laughs> predictions here. So for some reason, the Diamondbacks have a 0.1% chance to make the playoffs, only or, uh, to win the division, only a 2% chance to make the playoffs. They only have them pegged for 73 wins. So obviously, something was broken um, in, in the algorithm when it comes to this, but everything else kind of tracks to me.
1: Yeah, and I think you make uh, you make one interesting point, which is that the Dodgers actually have a lower World Series percentage slightly than the Yankees, but they're actually projected for more wins on average at 97.5 to the Yankees 95.9. And this is where the fact that the, the Dodgers and Padres are in the same division is really going to come into play because assuming that we don't go to the expanded playoffs, which at this point I don't think is going to happen, then one of these teams is going to end up in a single game wild card playoff game. And they're going to have like a 40% chance of not even playing in a division series, one of these teams. And, yeah. and that's where the decrease in playoff odds comes from, which is that like, you know, 40% of the time, the Dodgers are going to have to play in this wild card game. Sorry, the decrease in World Series odds. Uh, and like, you know, 30, 40% of the time, they're going to lose that wild card game if they're in it, which right. so. You know, this is why I'm saying, like, do we really have to have the one of these NL Central teams get a, a spot booked to the division series? And then, like, one of the Mets, Braves, Dodgers, and Padres is going to lose the wildcard game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's frustrating. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. Uh, and I think to your point about wins, Sam, like, yeah, the Dodgers and the Padres have to beat up on each other. But I'd much rather play the Giants, D-backs, and Rockies than I would the Blue Jays, Red Sox, and Rays. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with that, that's just a quick whip around guys. We are so excited as we mentioned, um, Pitchers and catchers reporting next week, baseball starting soon. So, our upcoming episodes are going to have divisional previews. We're going to start streaming some stuff on Twitch. So, we'll make sure to keep you guys updated. If you don't follow us on Twitter, catch us at the Alonzo bets. Well, we'll be starting to tweet a lot more about what's going on. Um, or if you want to contact us by email, if you're one of our older viewers or our younger viewers who just love uh, email, feel free to email us at thealonsobet at gmail.com. We are getting so excited for the seasons. We want to hear all your guys' thoughts, uh, all your suggestions, and what we can do to bring you better baseball coverage as we get back into the best time of the year, baby. The snow clears, the grass gets green, and it's time to play ball. We are so ready to go. So uh, with that, Sam, I'll give you a chance to say any parting words before we leave.
1: Uh, No, just – I'm. I mean, I'm so excited for the, for the start of the season. I'm really excited to get into those divisional previews. It's going to be like, you know, obviously I've been following everything in the off season, but it's going to be my first chance to sort of like sit down and really look at each one of these teams, top to bottom, figure out what I think about them. We'll probably get in some, you know, right before the start of the season, some futures bets for you guys. We're definitely Mm -hmm. going to tell you what we're betting. I know Aaron's going to have some fantasy advice for you guys. Who knows? Maybe I'll even get into some fantasy baseball this year. We'll have to see.
0: Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, with that ominous cliffhanger um, from Alfred Hitchcock here, we're going to leave you guys. Thanks so much for showing up today. We'll be back next week with all the best in sports. Uh, For the Alonso bet, we've been your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. Signing off, folks.